بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا أما بعد My dear brothers and sisters السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته so, ta'ala, the plan is, uh, I want to get back into studying Imam Nawi's 40 hadith. And for those of you that were attending the previous session, we covered hadith 1, 2, 3, and 5. So I thought before we get into hadith number 4, why not do you know, a recap of the hadith that we were taking. So I thought we'd spend briefly about 10 minutes on each hadith, and then we can open up the floor for Q&A, bithinlahi ta'ala. So the first hadith that Imam Nawi, rahimahullah, he starts off his 40 hadith with, is the hadith of Amr ibn al-Khattab radiallahu anhum that he narrates from the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam that all actions are by intentions and that every man shall have that which he intends. So this is the famous hadith of intentions that everyone is familiar with. Now why did Imam al-Nawi rahimahullah begin with this hadith? Why did Imam al-Nawi rahimahullah begin with this hadith? And there are several reasons why the scholars mention that Imam al-Nawi rahimahullah began with this hadith. Number one, it was following the tradition of the people of the past. There was a famous scholar by the name of Abdurrahman ibn Mahdi. He said that if I was to ever write a book, and whoever is to ever write a book, let him begin with this hadith. Let him begin with this hadith. Which leads us into reason number two. Why should someone begin with this hadith? And that is that the most important affair for the believer is his intention. There is nothing more important for the believer than his intention. And that each and every one of us you know, every minute of our lives, the righteous of us and the, the wicked of us, we need to remind ourselves of our intention. Because the difference between righteousness and wickedness is the intention. It's not necessarily the action within of itself. Sometimes a righteous action can become wicked through the intention. And sometimes even a wicked action can become righteous through the intention. So who can give me an example of a wicked action becoming righteous through the intention? And I'll give you a hint. This is something that someone discussed in the one Ummah conference. And it wasn't me. <laughs> the MC. What did the MC do? Miskeen guy. <laughs> it wasn't the MC. It was an actual speaker. One of the speakers talked about this. Go ahead. Fantastic. Who did? What did he say? And who, what was he talking about? Excellent. So do you remember any of the bad actions that were done? But were actually considered righteous because of the intention? The fishing boat thing. The fishing boat thing? Okay. And the village. Okay. Remind him, what was it? Killing the young boy. So those are all examples that within of themselves you look at them and you're like, why would someone do these actions? But in reality, the intention behind it was righteous and that is how wicked actions can sometimes become righteous through their intention behind them. Obviously Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had inspired Khidr to do those actions and that's why they became righteous. 
Now, looking at the exact opposite as well, that sometimes a person will do a righteous action and through an evil intention, even a righteous action will become wicked. And this is the essence of riya, the essence of showing off. Where you're doing a righteous action, but the intention behind it is to show off. The intention behind it is to show off. Reason number three, why Imam al-Nawi rahimahullah, he began with this hadith. And that is that he wanted to emulate the way of Imam al-Bukhari. Now for those of you that remember this hadith clearly, Imam al-Bukhari rahimahullah, he had a particular reason to select this hadith. And the reason why Imam al-Bukhari selected this hadith and placed it as the very first hadith under the chapter of Revelation was because of the isnad of the hadith, the chain of narration of this hadith. So when you look at the chain of narration of, had, of this hadith in particular, you'll notice that all of the narrators of this hadith were from the lands of Revelation. They were either from Medina or from Mecca, or some of them were even from both of them. Now this is for like a big price. I'll give $50 to the individual that remembers the chain of narration. Omar ibn al-Khattab, Allahu Akbar. So we have the first one, there we go. We're missing about four other people in between. Anyone remember any names at all? $50, man. Sorry? No, obviously not. I want it from memory. What good is reading from notes? Ibn Umar? Ibn Umar? Good guess. Very good guess. No. I'll give you a hint. <laughs> I'll give you a hint. He was the servant of Umar ibn al-Khattab, if anyone remembers. He, Abu Hafs is his kunya. So Hafsa, Hafsa was his daughter. No. Let me remind you And let's try to memorize this name because if you were to ever memorize one isnad in your life, let it be this one because of what a beautiful isnad it is in terms of its significance. So Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu anhu, he narrates this hadith to Al-Qam ibn Waqqas. And only one person heard this hadith from Umar ibn Khattab, it was Al-Qam ibn Waqqas, uh, Al-Layfi, who was from Medina. From Al-Qam ibn Waqqas, only one person heard this hadith and that was Muhammad ibn Ibrahim At-Taymi. Muhammad ibn Ibrahim At-Taymi, who was also from Medina. Then from Muhammad ibn Ibrahim At-Taymi, also only one person heard this hadith, who was Yahya ibn Sa'id Al-Ansari. Yahya ibn Sa'id Al-Ansari. And he too was, only, uh, was from Medina. And it is from Yahya ibn Sa'id al-Ansari that it's split up into like hundreds. So Yahya ibn Sa'id al-Ansari, he taught it to hundreds of people. And that is when this hadith actually became famous and renowned in the Muslim lands. So from Yahya ibn Sa'id al-Ansari, you had Sufyan ibn Uyayna. Sufyan ibn Uyayna heard this hadith from Yahya ibn Sa'id al-Ansari. And Sufyan ibn Uyayna was from both Medina and Mecca. He resided in both lands. And then from Sufyan ibn Uyayna, it goes to uh, a scholar who was the teacher of Imam al-Bukhari by the name of Al-Humaydi. Al so you'll find this name a lot inside Sahih al-Bukhari, Al-Humaydi. And Al-Humaydi's real name was Abdullah ibn Zubair. Abdullah ibn Zubair, not to be confused with the famous Sahabi. Not to be confused with the famous Sahabi. And then uh, Imam al-Bukhari rahimahullah narrates this hadith from Al-Humaydi. And he also narrates from several other teachers. But Imam al-Bukhari rahimahullah, he uses this particular narration under the chapter of Revelation uh, to give significance to this. And this shows you the genius of Imam al-Bukhari and also the diligence of Imam al-Bukhari in being able to, to you know, learn this hadith from so many teachers, yet find the chain of narration that would be significant to go under the chapter of Revelation. To go under the chapter of Revelation. Does anyone need me to repeat any of the names? Go ahead. 
So Al-Qam ibn Waqqas to Muhammad bin Ibrahim At-Taymi. To Muhammad bin Ibrahim At-Taymi who was from Medina. And then from Muhammad ibn Ibrahim At-Taymi to Yahya ibn Sa'id Al-Ansari. Anyone else? He's rep repeating. Okay, let's move on. Then we move on to a second point of interest in this hadith is that why did Imam al-Bukhari rahimahullah choose to narrate from al-Humaydi over here? Why did Imam al-Bukhari choose to narrate from al-Humaydi? And the reason why Imam al-Bukhari chose to narrate the very first hadith inside Sahih al-Bukhari from al-Humaydi was the fact that the Prophet sallallahu and Imam al-Bukhari narrates this later on in his Sahih. He said, give preference to the Quraysh and put the Quraysh forward. So the very first hadith that Imam al-Bukhari rahimahullah wanted to mention inside Sahih al-Bukhari was implementing one of the sunan of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, which was to put the Quraysh forward and Abdullah bin Zubair al-Humaydi was from the Quraysh, was from the Quraysh. So they say that Imam al-Nawi rahimahullah wanted to fulfill these exact same things as Imam al-Bukhari in terms of showing the greatness of the lands of revelation, showing the greatness of revelation itself and putting the Quraysh forward. And that is why Imam al-Nawi rahimahullah mentions this hadith. Uh, why Imam al-Nawi uh, mentions this hadith. Now, in terms of the hadith itself, we said that the reason why the Messenger of Allah وسلم, mentioned this hadith, and even though the story is not authentically proven, meaning that the isnad for it is not authentically proven, it is very common uh, amongst the narrators of hadith. That when they, ask, when they are asked, you know, why did the Messenger of Allah وسلم, mention the hadith of Niyat? He said there was an individual that uh, wanted to marry a woman. And this woman put the condition that in order for her to have the marriage proposal accepted, this man would have to accept her proposal and migrate to her land. And would have to migrate to her land. And thus the Messenger of Allah وسلم, he narrated this hadith. That the reason for his migration to Medina was not for the sake of hijrah within of itself, but rather it was for the sake of marrying the hand of a woman. Whereas had this individual uh, migrated for the sake of the hijrah, his reward would have been much, much greater. But in such a situation where he migrated for the sake of a woman, this is something which is inherently permissible and that was something which was allowed. Let us conclude our discussion on this hadith by talking about two things. Number one, the dangers of having uh, an unrighteous intention. And number two, how does one go about attaining sincerity in their actions? How does one go about attaining sincerity in their actions? So number one, in terms of the dangers of not having a righteous intention, it is the rejection of the action by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So you can imagine that you, know, you strive really hard to do these great actions that whatever you do, perhaps in terms of memorizing the Quran, perhaps in terms of waking up for Qiyamul Layl, perhaps in giving sadaqah, all of these actions that an individual will struggle with, if a person does not have a righteous intention behind it, then this action will not be accepted by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So its absence is as good as its, pre as its presence, is as good as its absence. It's as if you didn't do it at all. Number two, is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will punish for those actions that are acts of ibadah within of themselves. So if an act is an act of ibadah within of itself and it's done for other than the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then this is something that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will actually punish. So what is something that is inherently an act of ibadah that should be done only for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? So for example, you want to answer that? No, I saw you raise your hand. Go ahead, you can give an example if you like. 
So example, a salah. So you do this salah for other than the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this becomes an act of shirk within of itself, not just riyah. The difference between shirk and riyah over here is that one element of the salah may be done for other than the sake of Allah and that element will not be accepted. But if the whole salah is done for someone other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that is when it becomes an act of shirk. So you're directing your prayer to other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and this is when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will punish for that action. This is when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will punish for that action. The third danger of uh, doing actions for other than the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will cause this person to be humiliated in this life and the next. The Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he mentions that the first three people to be judged and thrown into the hellfire on their faces are people who would, we would generally assume and see to be righteous people. They are the scholar and the reciter. They are the philanthropist, the one that gives charity. And he is the one, and the third one is the one that goes out to fight in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And all three of them, when they did their actions, it wasn't purely for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but rather it was for the sake that people would praise them instead. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala caused them to be humiliated in the hereafter. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala caused them to be humiliated in the hereafter. Can anyone think of any other things that would be negative repercussions of having an impure intention? What is another repercussion? Go ahead, what are you thinking? No, so what I'm thinking is what is the negative repercussion? Like we mentioned the dangers of having an evil intention. Sorry? Explain that, what does that mean? So for example, if you're doing something peaceably that, right? You're more likely to do it for a lot for your whole life. If you're doing something for people's praise, you'll do it until you get the praise and after that you wait. Fantastic, excellent, very good point. So that when, when an action is done for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you'll find yourself more naturally motivated. You won't need external motivation. Whereas when an action is done for a reason for other than the sake of Allah, for a worldly reason, then the motivation will naturally disappear. Because once you attain that worldly motivation, the motivation to continue and to persist will no longer be there. Very good point, Jazakallah khair. Anything else that someone can think of? Another danger or repercussion of doing actions for other than the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Go ahead. If you don't get what you are aiming for, then uh, it will mess you up. It will mess you up. <laughs> In what sense? How will you get messed up? Just one second, let him finish inshallah. How will you get messed up? Uh -huh. he, he gives you money or he gives you his daughter. MashaAllah. <laughs> 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 okay, that's very good. So in terms of you're setting yourself up for disappointment. Because everyone will not have what they intend. Whereas when you do something for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you're guaranteed, even if you don't get what you want, you're guaranteed to get the reward from it. Whereas when it comes to having your intention for other than the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, if you don't get what you're intending, then you're not getting any reward from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and as well as you didn't get what you intended. Very good. I saw someone else that had their hand up. Go ahead. You won't be content with what you do. You won't be content with what you do. Explain that. What does that mean? Something else you want than the measure of peace that you're supposed to find in Salah. 
I hope no one's tried that and is speaking from experience. I, 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 that's, I'm assuming that's possibly true. I'm assuming that's possibly true. Anyone else? Khalas, last one, go ahead. I was going to say about that point. I think it's meant talking more about like contentment in terms of emotional contentment. Okay. So for example, if you're doing something like, um, if you're going after a girl, right? Like for example. Why is everything coming back to women and money? <laughs> <laughs> so, like, if you're going for that girl and you're doing it for her and you're doing it, you know, all that for her, okay. you won't have that contentment for us if you're truly doing it for Allah. You'll be content regardless of the outcome. Okay, so yeah, I guess that's sort of related. I guess that's sort of related. Inshallah khair. Let's move on to, so now how does a person actually attain sincerity? How does a person actually attain sincerity? Uh, one thing that's important to mention is that in terms of incentives for having sincerity, if you look at the opposite of all of the things we mentioned, those are all incentives for why we should have sincerity. sincerity. So that Allah will accept the action, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will reward the action. That even if you don't get what you want, you will still get reward from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will honor the person that has a sincere intention. So all of those are the incentives as to why you should be sincere. So now we come up to the, the concept of how does a person attain sincerity? How does a person attain sincerity? And there's three things that I like to mention at this time. Number one is the importance of remembering death. This is the Prophet ﷺ, why he encourages us to frequently remember death and to, to frequent the graveyards of the Muslims. So as to remind ourselves that anything that you chase of this dunya is going to remain in this dunya. It will not transcend into the next life. But anything that you put forth for the sake of the Akhirah, anything that you do for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then that is what will carry on with you to the next life. And that is something to remember. Uh, related to this very point is also the element of punishment. That those things that weren't for the sake of Allah, then obviously they will be punished in the grave. And those things that are for the sake of Allah, then they will obviously be rewarded in the grave. Number two is constantly checking your heart. You know, this is something that we're not reminded of enough but what does our heart really long for? No one knows the answer to this except for us ourselves. And this is something that we constantly need to monitor, constantly need to check that the actions that we're doing, who are we doing them for, right? Are we doing it for other than the sake of Allah or is it purely for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? And this is like the trap of shaitan where it will come in, where sometimes you're, you're thinking that you're doing it for the sake of Allah, but when you analyze it and you, you know, scrutinize the state of your heart, you realize that the actions that you're doing are for other than the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And one of the clearest ways to understand this concept is if you're not content with your ibadah. So for example, uh, you know, a slave of Allah, a Muslim, he's doing his worship for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He's doing all of these righteous deeds, but he's feeling completely burnt out. Or he's not feeling happy at the end of doing all of these righteous deeds then even though he may think he's doing them for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in reality that is an indication that he's not doing them for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The third and last thing I'll mention is that how do you actually keep track of your sincerity? How do you actually keep track of your sincerity? And I find it very, very interesting when you find, look at particular narrations of our predecessors that they used to say that if I knew I only had one more day to live, I would change nothing from my life. You know, when I hear such statements, I think to myself, SubhanAllah, how does a person reach that level where they're content to meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? That if they were to die in that state, they would be content in meeting Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the scholars comment on these narrations by saying the way they reached such a level is that they made sure that their private lives were better than their public lives. 
And this is the ultimate indication of sincerity. The ultimate indication of sincerity is when your private life is better than your public life. So you pray more in private, you read more Quran in private, you wake up for more Qiyamul Layl in private. And all the things that you do in public are just a small element of your greater life of worship. And you do much, much more in your private life. And this is why I would suggest that, you know, do this as an exercise. It's a real, you know, eye-opening exercise. But just take one day of your life. Take one day of your life and write down all the good deeds that you do that day. How many of those deeds are in public and how many of them are in private? And you'll get like a rude awakening that subhanAllah, nine-tenths of our ibadah for the most part is a public display of our actions. Whereas one-tenth, if we're fortunate, might be you know, something that is done in private, something that is done in secret, that no one else knows about except for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And as a sub-point to this, that even before you do this exercise and you get this rude awakening, make it a point, make it a habit for yourself that in your daily life, you have an element of ibadah that no one else knows about. No one else knows about it except for you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So on that day when you meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala asks you, you know, what are you putting forward? You have this one deed that you did consistently that no one else knows about except for you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this deed, it doesn't have to be grandiose, it doesn't have to be big, it can just be something small. So the act of, you know, saying your morning adhkar and no one else knows about it except for you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So you do it in private. Or you make it a habit that you know each and every single day you're going to try to give a small amount of sadaqah. Even literally if it's just like uh, a dollar or like 50 cents. You try to give it each and every single day in such a way that no one else knows about it except for you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Or you make it a point that you're going to help one person carry their bag or smile on their face or whatever you can do. A small deed that is only between you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is one of the best ways to build sincerity. And then obviously it doesn't need to be mentioned, but one of the things that will help you retain your sincerity the most is reading the chapters of sincerity and the chapters of riyah inside the books of hadith. So for example, you open up Riyadh al-Salihin, you read the chapter of sincerity in Riyadh al-Salihin, it is one of the best ways to build your sincerity as well. It is one of the best ways to build your sincerity as well. A last point that I'll mention about this hadith is uh, about the isnad of the hadith, is about the isnad of this hadith. So when we talk about the different levels of narrators, a hadith that is narrated by so many people that it couldn't have been fabricated and nothing could have been introduced into this hadith, this is known, excuse me, as a mutawatir hadith. It is known as a mutawatir hadith. And the opposite end of the spectrum of a mutawatir hadith is an ahad hadith, is an ahad hadith. And Ahad Hadith are divided into three categories. Ahad Hadith are divided into three categories. You have Mashhur, you have Aziz, and you have Gharib. And you have uh, Gharib. Let me briefly explain these three categories of Hadith. So the way I want you to understand this is looking at the different levels of generations. So you have the Prophet ﷺ that is going to be the origin of each and every single Hadith except for the Hadith Qudsi. So he's going to be the origin point. He's not what we're referring to over here. What we're referring to is after the Messenger of Allah So we're talking about the generation of the companions. Then we're talking about the generation of the tabi'een, the successors. And then we talk about the generation of the atba'at tabi'een, uh, the successors of the successors. So these are the generations that we're referring to. So when you look at an actual hadith, you will find that the hadith will have a 
combination of these generations. So you will have a Sahabi who will narrate it, uh, a general flow will be a Sahabi narrating it to a successor, who will narrate to the successor of the successors, who will narrate it to one of the famous Imams of Hadith. Now, looking at what these three terms mean, Gharib, Aziz, and Mashhur. Gharib means that the minimal level uh, at any one point of the Hadith is only one person, is only one person. And this is the hadith of إِنَّمَا الْأَعْمَالُ بِالنِّيَاتِ Meaning that if you look at the first three stages of narration from Umar ibn al-Khattab, so at the stage of the Sahaba, there's only one person. Al-Qama ibn Waqas, he was also only one person who heard it at that stage. Muhammad bin Ibrahim al-Taymi, Yahya ibn Sa'id al-Ansari, all of them are only considered one person in each stage, so each level of narration. So therefore this hadith would be considered gharib. This hadith would be considered gharib. Then you look at a hadith which is Aziz. And Aziz means the minimum number you have at each level is two. The minimum level you have at each number is two. And then Mashhur is that the minimal level that you have is three. The minimal level that you have is three. And then generally, anything beyond three, scholars would look at, sometimes they would refer to it as mutawatir, and sometimes they would just refer to it as ahad, without going into specific categorization. And the term mutawatir, it doesn't have a specific number. Sometimes it could be four, sometimes it could be 10. There wasn't a specific number. But it was a number that made a person feel certain that look, it is not possible for all of these people to get together to have fabricated a lie against the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So who can tell me what the three categories of Ahad Hadith are? And what are the difference between the three? Go ahead. Uh, Aziz. Aziz. Gharib. Mashur. Fantastic. And what does each one mean? So, means in each test only one letter. Fantastic. And Aziz means two. Fantastic. And these three categories fall under which category? Ahad, fantastic. So when you have Mutawatir and you have Ahad, Mutawatir is only one category and Ahad is divided into three. And those are the three categories that it, it is divided under. And this is one of the major differences between the Hadith of the Prophet and between the Quran. So even though it's the exact same people that are preserving both sources, the Quran is preserved by these people, the Hadith is preserved by these people. But the difference between the two is that the Quran is preserved in mutawatir format, whereas the Hadith for the vast majority of it, I would say even close to 95% of it, is preserved in Ahad format. And that is the difference between the two. Now, does this have any impact in terms of our aqidah or in terms of our acceptance and implementation of these hadith? No, it doesn't. As long as the hadith is proven to be authentic, then whether it is ahad, aziz, gharib, any of that, we will still implement it and act upon it and believe in it as long as it's proven to be authentic. Now we move on to hadith number two. Hadith number two is the hadith of Jibreel. Hadith, Jibreel, hadith of Jibreel. Go ahead. Fantastic, Jazakallah, khair. that's a very good point. So reflecting on your intentions before the act, during the act, and after the act, very good point. Yeah. Can you recover actions that you did before the 
And this goes back to a uh, question in Usul al-Fiqh. And it's a very detailed and complex answer. I'll give you a summary of it. The summary of it is, if a person leaves the fold of Islam, then any action that was accepted during the state of Islam, if they were to come back to Islam, it would become accepted again. However, if they died in a state of other than Islam, then that action would not be accepted. So that's the case of a person who leaves Islam and comes back to Islam. Now let's go into scenario number two, where a person, he doesn't leave the state of Islam, but he loses like a, a level of Iman. And that's what happens with like Riyah and stuff like that. For this individual, we say that the action is lost forever. That action cannot, they cannot come back. And he has to redo that action, and that is the only way it will ever be accepted from him. So once the action is lost by a person in the state of Islam, then there's no coming back from it. Does that make sense? Okay? Well, so let's move on to hadith number two. Hadith number two is known as the hadith of Jibreel. And the reason why it is called the hadith of Jibreel is because Jibreel came to the Messenger of Allah وسلم, and he asked him a series of questions. He asked him a series of questions. The first three of them are related to direct elements of faith, Islam, Iman, and Ihsan. And then the last of them is about the signs of the hour. The last of them is about the signs of the hour. So in terms of the elements of Islam, we actually discuss this in detail in the third hadith. So we're going to skip over that part. Now moving on to the concept of Iman. There's a general foundation that we'll establish with the principle of Iman. And that is that when Iman and Islam are mentioned together in the Quran, then they will have a different meaning. However, if they're mentioned individually inside the Quran and the Sunnah, then they will be synonymous in their meaning. So how... Like what, does that, what exactly does that mean? The general meaning of Islam is to submit to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Anyone who submits to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and agrees to abide by the five principles, this is what is known as Islam. And in order to become a Muslim, part of the very first statement of the Shahada is to actually believe in the six articles of faith at the same time. Is to actually believe in the six articles of faith at the same time. If you don't believe in the five pillars and you don't believe in the six articles of faith, then your Islam cannot be valid. Your Islam cannot be valid. So in the Quran, when you find the term Islam or you find the term Muslim by itself, this is what it, uh, it, that and Iman will refer to the same thing. So Islam by itself, Iman by itself, Mu'min by itself, Muslim by itself, all of it will mean the same thing uh, if they are mentioned individually, if they're mentioned individually. However, if they're mentioned together in the same sentence or in the same um, construct, then they will have individual meanings. Then they will have individual meanings. As we see in this very hadith. As we see in this very hadith. That Islam and Iman are mentioned together and therefore they will have different meanings. So Iman, when it is mentioned together with Islam, will be the higher of the two. It will be the higher of the two. Now, what exactly does it mean to be a mu'min and what exactly does it mean to be a Muslim? A Muslim is an individual that he does his absolute basics and from time to time will fall into some of the major sins. From time to time will fall into some of the major sins. This is the level of Islam. The level of Iman is that this individual, not only will he do his basics, but he's going to stay away from falling into the major sins. 
And when an individual can free himself from the major sins altogether, this is when he achieves the level of Iman. And this is the person who we will call a mu'min. This is the person that we will call a mu'min. And the level of Ihsan, as is mentioned in this hadith, that is a level where a person worships Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to such a degree as though Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is watching him. And what's important to understand about the level of Ihsan, this is almost like a pinnacle. Almost like a pinnacle. So I want you to imagine as if your faith was a mountain, right? If your faith is a mountain, does anyone actually reside on top of a mountain in his journey? No, they don't. So it is a state that can be achieved in certain elements of your life and you will want to continue aiming for that achievement so that your Iman constantly goes higher. But in reality, no one lives in a state of Ihsan. In reality, no one lives in a state of Ihsan. The highest level of consistent Iman that you can live in is in a state of Iman, that you can fulfill your basics, stay away from the major sins. But staying away from minor sins is not possible for any human being. There's not a single human being that comes into existence except that he would have committed some of the minor sins, that no one will escape from it. And that is an important understanding between these three levels of faith, between Islam, Iman, and Ihsan. Then he asks the Messenger of Allah وسلم, about when is the Day of Judgment. And the Prophet responds that the questioner knows just as much as the one that is questioned. Meaning that this is something exclusive for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There are two important points to derive from this point of the discussion. The two important points are, number one, is that the, uh, the knowledge of the Prophet was limited. The knowledge of the Prophet was limited. And why is that important? It's important because you will find certain groups that attribute unlimited knowledge to the Messenger of Allah They will say that the Messenger of Allah has knowledge of the unseen, uh, the past, the present, and the future, and you know, other than that. And obviously this is not befitting of the Messenger of Allah as this is something exclusive to Allah Himself. Then number two, is the Messenger of Allah وسلم, is teaching us a very, very important point about character and akhlaq over here. And that is when an individual should feel comfortable by saying, I do not know, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. That as a human being, even if you are a prophet from the prophets of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you're not required to know everything in life. And you should feel comfortable by saying, look, I don't know the answer to this, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. So the Prophet is teaching us a lesson in humility, that even the greatest of prophets felt no shame and felt no shyness in saying that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. I was reading something very interesting the other day. Uh, this is about the fatawa of Imam Ahmad rahimahullah. The fatawa of Imam Ahmad rahimahullah. And I can't remember who the narrator of this narration was. But he says that I went through the fatawa of Imam Ahmad rahimahullah and I found that there were over 10 different statements that Imam Ahmad rahimahullah used to use for saying, I don't know. 10 different statements that Imam Ahmad used to use for saying, I don't know. And these were the vast majority of his answers. These were the vast majority of his answers. So those are two significant points. Number one, that the wide variety of ways of saying, I don't know in the Arabic language. And then number two, is that even someone like the likes of Imam Ahmad rahimahullah, you know, a, um, 
What's the word I'm looking for? An iconic figure in his times, meaning he was known as the Imam of Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah in his times. If someone like him can feel comfortable by saying, I don't know, then you know, where are we? Like the vast majority of our knowledge comes from like YouTube and from Google and like Wikipedia and stuff. So where are we in terms of answering our questions? So we have more rights to say I don't know and remaining quiet than the great Imams of the past and even more so to the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So those are two important lessons. Then the third lesson is derived from the question of Jibreel himself. So Jibreel goes on to say, fine if you can't tell me when the Day of Judgment is, then at least tell me what some of its signs are. The significance of Jibreel asking for the signs of the Day of Judgment. It wasn't so that the people become paranoid and they start looking at, hey look, this is another sign of the Day of Judgment, Qiyamah is close. The reasoning behind that was, so that people would prepare for that day. People would prepare for that day. A man came to the Messenger of Allah and he asked him, O Messenger of Allah, when is the hour? The Messenger of Allah responded by saying, That what have you prepared for that day? And this is the genuine question that we all need to ask ourselves. You know, each and every single day that we are alive, should pose that question, that this day that I am alive, what have I put forth for my meeting with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? That we need to have this contribution that we're putting for that day. You know, this is sort of like, you know, it's like tax season right now. If you ever try to get like an appointment at your bank right now, it's impossible. Like to meet anyone from your bank, if you're trying to meet someone, they're not going to give you an appointment right now. So I was trying to get an appointment with the bank a couple of weeks back. And I was like, look, when's the next available appointment? They're like, you can come and do standby. You might get someone. But if you want, you know, a set appointment, it'll be like three weeks from now. So I asked them, you know, why is it so busy right now? And they're like, it's RSP season right now. Everyone's trying to, you know, cash in with their RSPs and make sure that their investments are ready. And I had like a really serious reflection at that time, subhanAllah. I was like... You know, all of this is temporary, that, you know, stock market might crash, you know, the, the housing bubble crashes, something happens, all of it is lost, right? And people are going to cry over all of their investments. And I'm not against investments, I think as Muslims, we need to have a financial aptitude in terms of our investments. But what I'm talking about is when we focus so much in investing in this dunya, we forget about investing in the akhirah. And when you look at your investment with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the contributions that you make towards meeting Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, nothing will ever be lost from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's end. Meaning that there will be no financial crisis from Allah's end. There will be no housing bubble from Allah's end. There will be no market manipulation from Allah's end. But rather whatever you put forth with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, not only does Allah protect it for you, but it's multiplied in terms of its good deeds. And if there's any shortcomings, it's from the investor's side. It's not in the, the thing that you invested in at that time. So that's something I wanted to, to, to share with you. That, you know, the preparement for the day of judgment is a reflection of, of, of that within of itself. That each and every single day, it's a conscious question that, you know, on this day, what have I prepared? to put forth for my meeting with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then the Prophet ﷺ, he goes on to mention some of the signs of the Day of Judgment. The Prophet ﷺ mentions when the Bedouin men will be competing with one another to build the highest buildings. And obviously this is something that we see in our times already. You look at you know, the Burj Khalifa in the Emirates, you look at the Faisaliyah Towers in Riyadh, Literally, you know, these people were Bedouin people. You know, they were camel herders, 
you know, 60, 70 years ago. And now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blessed them with money. And that prophecy is coming true that literally they are competing with one another to build the tallest building. Why? You know, Allah knows best. They want to show off their money. I don't know what it is. But again, that prophecy is coming true. The second thing the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam mentions, that a slave woman will give birth to her master. A slave woman will give birth to her master. And there were multiple interpretations in terms of what this actually meant. One interpretation was that children will become extremely disobedient towards their parents. A second interpretation was that slavery will become uh, abolished and that the free, the free children uh, will be free, but the parents will re remain in a state of slavery. And there are multiple other interpretations that were mentioned for this as well. And then the hadith concludes with the Prophet ﷺ telling the people that, do you know who this individual was? They said, we do not know. Allah and His Messenger know best. And the Prophet ﷺ said that this was Jibreel who came to teach you your religion. This was Jibreel that came to teach you your religion. And the Prophet ﷺ teaches us very, something, uh, something very significant and important over here. That the teacher is not just the one who does the speaking, but the teacher is also the one that asks the intelligent questions. The teacher is also the one that asks the intelligent questions. And this is something that's lost in our times. That a lot of the times we only ask questions for the sake of benefiting ourselves. But the sign of a true, genuine, you know, smart, intelligent person is that he will ask those questions that are of benefit to the masses, that are of benefit to the masses. That the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, they needed to know the difference between Islam, Iman and Ihsan. They needed to know about preparing for the Day of Judgment. And this is what Jibreel uh, salam, came with. Then the third hadith, and we'll try to do these quickly ta'ala. The third hadith was that Islam is built upon five pillars. The third hadith is about Islam being built upon five pillars. And the five pillars over here, they're called pillars because without the existence of them, one's Islam does not exist. Now what does it mean, uh, these pillars existing in one's faith, theoretically and practically speaking? From a theoretical standpoint, if anyone is to deny in belief, any of these five pillars, it would take them outside the fold of Islam. So anyone denies that I don't need to say the Shahada to become Muslim. Anyone that denies that, hey, it's not a big deal if I pray five times a day, or I don't have to pray five times a day. Someone who says the same about Ramadan, someone who says the same about Zakat, and some, someone that says the same about Hajj. So from a theoretical standpoint, to deny any of these, to have doubt about the obligation out of any of these, can take a person outside the fold of Islam. Actually not can, it does take a person outside the fold of Islam. That's from a theoretical standpoint. From a practical standpoint, it's a completely different case. So where there is agreement is that everyone will agree upon the Shahada and the saying of the Shahada. That's something that's unanimous. So whether it's practically or theoretically, denying of the Shahada or not saying the Shahada, there is no Islam for that individual. And then what is also in agreement is that someone who falls short in fasting, someone who falls short in giving their zakah, and someone who falls short in going for hajj, there's also agreement that someone who falls short in not doing those aspects, he will be someone who has fallen into a major sin, but is still within the fold of Islam. He is still within the fold of Islam. So this is the major ikhtilaf in terms of uh, what took place. Those three opinions. Number one is that you are a major sinner but still within the fold of Islam. 
then regardless of whether it was laziness or not laziness, then opinion number two is that they differentiated between the one who left off Salah altogether as opposed to one who left it off in a state of laziness. And then opinion number three, again, they didn't differentiate but went to the exact opposite side. And that opposite side being that you've left the fold of Islam whether it was intentionally or unintentionally. And all sides have their proofs. All sides have their proofs. But what is... Uh, a really solid proof for the Hanbali Madhab and this is something very important to consider regardless of where you stand on this difference of opinion is that Abdullah bin Shaqiq, Abdullah bin Shaqiq from the you know, Imams of the Tabi'een he says that the Sahaba radiallahu anhum did not consider any act of abandonment to be an act of kufr other than Salah the Sahaba radiallahu anhum did not consider any act of abandonment as an act of kufr other than the salah. So it shows you the great uh, you know, station that salah has in Islam. And one of the great, you know, inshallah Allah blesses us all to read the Arabic language one day. There's a famous book called Ta'zim Qadr al-Salah. You know, the greatness of the station of salah in Islam. This is written by one of the great imams of the, the Salaf by the name of Imam al-Marwazi. And he compiles you know, the, this discussion from beginning to end in terms of what was the position of the Imams of the Salaf and the Imams of the Sahaba in terms of the state of Salah and the issue of Salah. And he discusses it quite thoroughly and it's a very interesting discussion to see where he stood on this. Not only on the Salah itself, but in terms of some of the other uh, arkan of Islam as well. So one of the clear things you see that Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, he considered the act of abandonment of the zakah to be an act of disbelief as well. And this is why he had the hurub al-ridda, right? The uh, battles of apostasy. That the people who uh, did not want to give their zakah, and they used to give zakah during the time of the Prophet sallam, he, he fought them out of a state of apostasy. The significance of this hadith, the significance of this hadith, the significance of the hadith of the five pillars of Islam is a person is able to tell what is the absolute borderline. What is the absolute borderline where he is on the verge of crossing into disbelief. And this is why the Messenger of Allah وسلم, spends the time to explain what the five pillars of Islam are. Because if you're just struggling with the five pillars, then it is feared that a person will fall into a state of disbelief. And you want to, as a believer, build upon each of these pillars to the next level. So in terms of the shahada, the next level of the shahada is making sure that you understand the detailed evidences for all of these things. The salah is that rather than just focusing on the fara'id and the, the, you know, the obligatory salah, you want to make sure that you're at a level where you're praying your sunnah and you're praying your nafil. When it comes to zakah, so not only should you be paying your zakah on time, but you're giving out sadaqah as well. And you're lending out money to people as well. Uh, a lot of people don't know this, but for every amount of money that you lend out to a person, then it's as if you gave half of that amount in sadaqah. It's as if you gave half of that amount in sadaqah. So it's a level you know, uh, that is just below giving sadaqah, where you lend money out to people. That even though you're getting it back, where you have the intention to receive it back, just the fact that you're lending it out to someone, helping someone in their time of need, it's as if you gave half of that amount in sadaqah. So that is in terms of zakah. In terms of the Ramadan, you know, Ramadan is obligatory to fast. If you're just fasting Ramadan itself, try to do Mondays and Thursdays. If you can't do Mondays and Thursdays, try to do you know, three days out of the week. Uh, you can't do that. Try to do three days, uh, uh, sorry, three days out of the month. You can't do that. You know, try to make sure you're, at least you're doing Muharram 
you're doing Ashura and you know Ara, the day of Arafah. So always finding something more than just the obligatory to do. Then same thing for Hajj. You know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala may not give all of us an opportunity to go for Hajj, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive to go for Umrah as well. So that is the absolute minimum. And as a believer, you want to try to build on top of that to retain your faith. And then, you have a question on this? Let's let me finish the last hadith and we'll open up for, for questions. And the very last hadith is hadith number five, which is the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha, where she says that whoever introduces into this religion of ours, that which is not from it, shall have it rejected. And this shows us the second condition of the acceptance of good deeds, which the first is intention, and the second is that every action that we do, it has to be in accordance to the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah If it was not sanctioned by the Messenger of Allah then this deed will not be accepted by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And you have many, many statements of the Sahaba from them, Ibn Umar radiallahu anhu, he says, stay away from innovation, even if the people consider it to be good. And Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu saying, stick to the methodology of the Sahaba, uh, practice what they practiced and stopped where they stopped and don't go beyond that and don't go beyond that. So this shows us the importance of having a sound methodology in worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala where one is sincere and one follows the example of the Prophet sallallahu and the consensus of the companions, not individual opinions of the companions, but the consensus of the companions and that is the methodology that we are meant to develop in worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We'll conclude with that. Subhanakallahumma bihamnik ashadu wa la ilaha illa ant astaghfiruka wa atubu ilayk.